Welcome to the Energetic Radio Podcast. My name is Dale Sidebottom. Each week, I'll bring you inspirational guests who will help you bring fun, energy, and purpose into your lives. Let the show begin. episode number 151 of the podcast. Today we are joined by Mel Kettle. If you haven't come across Mel, she is brilliant and not only brilliant what she does, but also the messaging um, around social media, marketing, communicating, building relationships and just working with people in general. And today we're going to talk about disconnecting to reconnect and obviously the power of human connection and relationships and how we can get more of those in our lives at work and build that joy and happiness around whatever we do. Now, Mel talks about three key aspects of life that not only do you need as a boss, employee, as a family member, a parent, a husband, a kid, but everybody needs these in their lives. And that's to obviously practice empathy, show kindness, and be your true authentic self. Now, we talk so many more things about that. We talk about her amazing book on thriving online communities. Um, We talk about, obviously, that she is a worldwide presenter. I think last year alone, she was on the road um, for over 100 days. So that just shows um, how in demand she is, the messaging that Mel brings across, and just the quality content that you're going to hear in today's chat. So guys, sit back, disconnecting to reconnect, the power of human connection and relationships with Mel Kettle. Welcome back to the podcast. I've got Mel Kettle all the way from sunny Brisbane, which is not so sunny at the moment. Mel, how are you? I'm fantastic. Thanks so much, Dale. Not a problem. Now, we're just talking a little bit off air that uh, obviously living up north of Australia, you normally don't have to worry about a heater, but lately it's been quite cold. It has. I um, have had the heating come on the last couple of mornings because we've had a few very un-Brisbane-like mornings of about six degrees. Oh, geez, that, that's really getting on Victoria style. For listeners overseas, if you want to come to Australia in winter, do not come to Melbourne. Go to Brisbane. It's a place to be. Now, Mel, let's get straight into it. I was introduced to one of your emails from a good friend of mine, Michael Sheedy. It said, how we need to disconnect to reconnect. And it really hit home with me a lot about um, human connection and making uh, meaningful sort of relationships. You want to sort of, we'll get straight into it. Do you want to talk a little bit about this sort of email you sent out? Because I really enjoyed it. Oh, thanks so much. I, um, I often wonder if anybody actually reads my emails. <laughs> well, I, I really, that's the reason, the whole reason I reached out to email was just after reading that, I'm like, well, I can really resonate with that and I know my listeners will as well um, and I want to just talk more about that. Yeah, thanks. So what I was talking about was um, I think I wrote this email just before I went to, just after I came back from speaking at a conference that was about technology and the conference organiser said to me, our delegates will have just had three days of talking about technology. Can you close it out? And I said, yes, I can. But um, as much as I love technology and as much as I try to be an early adopter for as many things as possible, can I actually not talk about technology, but can I talk about the importance of human connection and human relationships? Because it's really easy to get caught up in a world of technology and forget the main Um, you know, the two main things in life is that human connection is essential to humanity. And from a business perspective, people do business with people they know, love and trust. And so he loved that idea. And so I spent 45 minutes talking about how do we need to create a human connection in our increasingly connected world? Because our increasingly connected world 
in terms connected in terms of technology and smartphones and Netflix and smart TVs and computers at work means that as humans we're becoming more and more disconnected from each other. Um, and he loved that idea. So mm-hmm. one of the reasons I was so keen to talk about that is because personally I've spent a large part of this year just feeling really overwhelmed and feeling really overwhelmed with expectation that I have a presence on every social media platform, that I have a presence, um, that I'm constantly at work, that um, I reply to emails as soon as they come in. And I just thought if I'm, you know, smart, intelligent, work in this space, feeling overwhelmed, then how are other people feeling and coping with this barrage of expectation that's placed upon us and this lessening of human relationships and connection. So, and so, so true, I'll Mel. About that. Yeah. That's yeah. It. And it's so true. And like you just said, the probably real big expectation isn't from anyone else. It's probably the expectation you're putting on yourself, is it? I think some of it is. Yep. But I do, but you know, I work for myself, so I have a lot of flexibility in terms of how I work. Um, I've changed my email footer recently to read. Um, <clears throat> one of the biggest perks of working for myself is that I can choose when and how I work. So if you get this email at a time that's outside of your work hours, like at midnight, um, don't feel that you need to reply until it's convenient for you. And I know that a lot of friends of mine who work in corporate in particular, there's an expectation that when they get an email, they'll reply to it within 10 minutes. Mm. And so if their boss or somebody else important in the organisation sends them an email at 9 o'clock at night and they look at their their phone and check their emails and there's this expectation, unwritten or not, that they'll respond to it. And... I think we need to step away from that expectation and get back to the um, you don't need to work, you know, you don't need to be on call or available 24 hours a day. And, yes, some people's work patterns are that they prefer to work at night or they prefer to work really early in the morning, but don't let that dictate how you respond. So, you know, there's some organisations now, and I love this philosophy, that are introducing things like Email Free Friday where they no longer allow staff in the workplace to send internal emails on a Friday. So if they need to talk to somebody else in their organisation, they need to either pick up the phone and call them or walk around and see them. And I think you could take that one step further and put an out-of-office on your email for external emails that says, we're having email free Friday today. If it's urgent, please call me. I'd love to have a conversation with you. And a couple of organisations that are doing this have reported that they've got much stronger relationships both within their workforce but also with their clients and their customers because there's more conversations happening over the phone. And it's probably, like you just said, I I love that. And I know it's pretty drastic that we shouldn't really have to do that. But what it's allowing people to do as well is they're probably saving time because instead of doing a a back and forth 15 email train, you can probably sort out that conversation in person in 10 minutes. And I suppose that's the beauty of human connection. So Mel... I know we have to go to drastic measures because, like you just said, technology is here to stay and sometimes it 
gets misunderstood or it just takes over and people are working all the time. But what are some top tips out there? Like like you've just said that no email Friday or putting you out of office on so you have those human connections. How else can we build those relationships and sort of get back to where we were before we had email, before we had social media, before we had the amazing technology we've got today? I'm certainly not saying get rid of it completely um, because it's a necessary part of life. But I do believe that we need to put some processes or some parameters in place so that we can control the technology and don't let the technology control us. Um, Because, you know, all the apps that we use that light up when we get a notification, they're designed to be addictive. Smartphones are designed to be addictive. They're designed to give you that little endorphin hit every time you see a light flashing or every time you hear a beep or every time that notification pops up to so that you want to keep on going back and getting that next hit and that next hit. So one of the things that I recommend is that you put your own technology, um, put a tech policy in place and either and put it in place in your workplace but also think about how can you control tech in your private life and how can you have a tech policy at home. Now, one of those things, one of those policies might be you put your phone down and you put it on silent or do not disturb mode at nine o'clock at night or an hour before you go to bed or two hours before you go to bed or you don't pick it up in the morning until you've, you know, um, gotten up, got dressed, had a shower um, and you're on your way to work. Um, And on the weekends, maybe have a half a day every weekend where all your phones are either in flight mode or um, away somewhere so that you can actually spend time with your family and the people who you love. And by having it in flight mode, you can still use it to take fo- to take photos and to take video if you're out with your kids or with your, you know with your friends, but you're not getting disturbed all the time. Mm. Um, and then in, from a work perspective, you might have an organisational-wide tech policy that no phones are allowed in meetings because when you have a phone in a meeting, whether it's face down or face up, people's attention spans are significantly lessened compared to when they're um, um, compared to when you've got it in a bag or in a different room. Yeah, it's, it's so true and it really just comes back to being present wherever you are really. And like you just said, on the weekends with your family, then you don't want to be contactable. You want to be able to give them your wholehearted full attention and, and that's a great idea using flight mode. I've never really thought of that. Now, yeah. one, of, one of the other things you just mentioned about social media and um, they're so addictive. I know that Facebook and I had someone on the podcast this is probably a year or two ago now, but you know every time you open Facebook up, it loads, it spins up the top. It doesn't actually need to do that. It loads straight away, but that's emulating a pokey machine or a slot machine. That's how addictive it is and what they're doing to us. Exactly. And the people who created these apps studied addicts, like studied drug, hardcore drug addicts to see what it is that makes them need to get that next hit. And so when, for example, Instagram was created, the people who created it deliberately used colours and sounds and um, notification styles that make you want to keep on going back to check it again and again and again to see how many people liked your photo, to see, um, you know, how popular you, you are and that image is. And that's having massive ramifications, particularly on teenage girls who report that 
there's research that's been done, I think, in the UK that says teenage girls who use Instagram have lower self-esteem, more body image issues, and feel higher degrees of anxiety and stress. And that's teenagers. Mm. You know, life's hard enough. When you're a teenager, you shouldn't have anxiety and stress, particularly from something such as a smartphone app. Yeah, <laughs> it's just, correct. It's just horrifying to me the the influence that these that this technology has on us and you know i'm not saying don't use it but how do we control it how do we put parameters in place so that it's not as um it's not creating as many negative emotions and as neg- many negative feelings and behaviours in us. Yeah, and it's so true. But and my thing is, and I see this a lot, Mel, dealing with kids or just even with adults in my workshops, and I'm sure you do as well, but it's here to stay and Instagram is huge. It is massive and it's not going mm-hmm. anywhere. So my, my big thing is that how do we get around that? How do we improve the anxiety, the stress, the body issues? And I think that all comes back to building meaningful relationships. Now, is that something you're seeing that um, people are, they're addicted to these things and because they've been designed that way, that they've been like, it's like gamification, they've made it that engaging that people just want it more, Mel. So how how important now is it that, you know, being part of something, being part of a team, a club or something to be meaningful relationships with people outside of that device? Yeah, it's critical. It's, it's really critical. And, you know, I look at um, my niece who's 13 and there's a way on your phone that you can look at, uh, you can, it, it can tell you how you much on. time you, your screen time, That's how much scary. time you've spent on it, but also how much time you spent on each app. And I was having a chat with her about it and she pulled up her screen time and it was 15 minutes a day. And well, that's <laughs> I fantastic. said, those, what? <laughs> And she said, I don't use it very often um, because she plays seven sports. And so she's really athletic. She's really into sport and that's what she'd rather do. But there's also really strict parameters in her home as to when she can use it. And the other thing is that neither of her parents are really into um, using their phone and neither of them, I think her mother's on Instagram, her father, who's my brother, is nowhere on social media apart from LinkedIn. And so she doesn't see them on the phone all the time. And I really believe you can't be what you can't see. Mm. And so if your parents or if people who are influencers in your world, so your par- as kids it's your parents and your teachers and as adults it's your friends and your employers and your family, if they're all on their phone all the time, then that indicates that that behaviour is okay. So if you don't want your kids to be addicted to smartphones, well, you need to put yours down as the parent. And as teachers, you need to have yours down as well. So how can we, dem- how can we role model and demonstrate the behaviours that we want our children to have? And one of them is to be really clear, for example, no phones at the dinner table. Um, you get an hour of phone time a day. You can choose when you get it. You can choose whether you do four 15-minute increments or two 30-minute increments or three 20-minute increments or whatever it was you want. But when it's done, it's done. And as parents, role model that behavior as well. So you can't say to your kid, you can only have, you know, you can only play a video game for this many minutes a day if they're going to be on watching TV for the whole night. Or, you know, you've got to have the same rules for everybody in the family. Yeah, and it, it, it really does come back down to being that role model, isn't it? And we do emulate who we see, and that is, is, and that's who we're going to grow up to be because that's accepted. So, 
Um, exactly. My thing as well is if, and I see this all the time, that um, parents, teachers, even in corporates, they say, oh, the kids, they can't have conversations these days. They're always on their phone. There are groups of four of them, and they're communicating through their phones. And I say to them, well, maybe if you looked at your behaviours, how Ooh. often are you on your phone? And, and that screen time is alarming, Mel. It is so scary what some people are on. For example, the other day I was running a retreat in Bali, and this 22-year-old girl on the trips, and we're talking about putting, well, there's a one-day challenge, put your phone down for two hours today and connect with people and make some meaningful relationships. And she actually said that the other day she'd spent eight and a half hours on her phone, oh. and her screen time was nearly six hours on Instagram. And I'm like, that oh. is a nearly a full-time job. Wow. And, I, wow. and and but that that's what it, that's where it's at these days, and they it's addictive, isn't it? And so that's what I mean. I, I don't know where that's come from, or is that social pressure, or whatever it is. But to hear that your niece is only doing fifteen uh, fifteen minutes a day, that's incredible. Well, that was that particular day. I, I've, I've got no doubt there's days when she's on there for longer, but it's just not really a big priority for her yeah. because she plays heaps of sport she's got a great friendship group and they hang out and they do fun things together yeah. and she hasn't grown up in a home where it's um where it's behavior that she sees all the time because yeah. her parents use their phones obviously but they don't use them unless there's a purpose yeah and it's so and, true that like sorry yeah. okay and that really just comes down to obviously reputation so Parents or if you're a teacher, you're a leader, coach, whatever mm. you are, your reputation, keeping that and then being consistent with that, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. But then the other issue is, you know, Gallup research that comes out, talks about, that has come out recently says that in the workforce, only 13% of our workforce are engaged. So 13% of the people who work for you are engaged at work. And that's a stat that hasn't changed very much over the last probably five or six years. And that's appalling because when your staff are more engaged at work, they're more productive, That which means they've got more outputs, which means you get more revenue, which means you generate more profit. So if only 13% of your staff are actually engaged at work, imagine the impact that that's having on your bottom line. Oh, and so even, even if you could increase it just by, you know, five or six points, or even up to 20% engagement, <laughs> that's a massive increase on productivity and achievement and potential re potentially revenue and profit. So one of the reasons that um, people are less engaged at work is, again, because there's no um, there's this lack of connection and there's this lack of relationships in the workplace. And I think the more we can be connected at work and the more we can have leaders who are connected, um, then the more we're going to increase that engagement. And one of the, like, I, I believe that there's three or four qualities that people who are connectable have. The first is that they show empathy. Um, the second is that they're kind. And the third is that they're authentic. And if you've got those three qualities as a leader and you genuinely show an interest in people, you're kind to your staff, you treat them well, and it doesn't need to be giving them an extra week of leave. It can be as simple as saying to them, how was your weekend, and actually listening. It can be as simple as saying to them, hey, let's go for a walk because you look like you're not quite you look like you're having a bit of a difficult time at the moment. Let's go for a quick walk around the block and have a chat about it. Let's, um, you know, taking a cup of tea to your receptionist when she's frantic with reception duties. And don't 
you know, don't um, take your staff for granted and don't get so caught up in the busyness of your day that you forget to be kind. Mm. And, and then the th- yeah, sorry, Mel, keep going. I, I'm right. just nodding along, writing down. I'm loving this. <laughs> and then the third is being authentic. How do you show your human side? Because people do business with people. Um, so how can you show your human side so that people get a better understanding of who you are as a leader, what your values are, how you live your values, but also as an organization, how do you show the human side of an organization? And showing the human side of an organization is things like being accountable for your mistakes, being transparent about what you are and what you do, and being transparent internally and externally. Um, and don't try to be perfect all the time because people don't trust perfect. People trust imperfect because none of us are perfect in the real world. Um, and then, you know, one of my clients says to me, I really want to be authentic. I really want to get to meet all of my people, but they're very geographically dispersed and it's never going to happen. So a great way to show your authenticity in the workplace as a leader is to create video Turn your smartphone, use your smartphone for this, turn it into selfie mode, record a video and share it on your intranet or on Facebook Workplace or whatever internal tool you're using for communication and then create a different one or use the same one and share it on LinkedIn and let people get a sense of who you are as a leader and do this again and again and again and people will get to understand who you are and what you stand for. And that authenticity will make you far more attractive to your staff, your customers, um, your investors, your suppliers, and other people within your stakeholder group who you're trying to influence. And the more that people get to trust you, the more that um, they're going to have your back when things don't go particularly according to plan. Yeah, and, and, and that's building again, building that reputation through. And I think everything you just mentioned there, you can't really have empathy, kindness, or be authentic unless you really have the power of listening and taking that in. And, and then when you are able to listen, you can really be vulnerable and show a different side of yourself to your staff, to your colleagues, whoever, around what they're going through and just that you're on the same level, that you're not perfect with them. And th- those two skills, I think listening and vulnerability, are things that everybody can adapt, can't they, Mel? Oh, absolutely. And they're so critical in every part of your world, not just in your work world, not just in your home world, but every single aspect of your world is essential. Um, Listening and vulnerability are essential skills. And I think that they're not taught enough or they're not um, valued enough. Mm, I, I have this conversation a bit and I think, to be honest, I don't think you can really learn I think they both come with time and the more situations you're in, Mel, the better you become at listening um, because you realise it's not just all about you or people are that caught up in their own stuff that they don't really care. And then when you can actually break down barriers and show a different side of yourself or really show them that it's okay to fail, it's okay to make mistakes, that you start to realise that oh, there's so much power in listening and then also sharing your story. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And that's the, third, that's the other thing that you've just said, sharing your story. The more we can share stories and share personal stories, then the more people will get to know us and get to relate to us. Mm. And that makes you more connectable 
as yeah, well. It definitely does. So now, obviously, 15 years working for yourself now, and you've, you know, you travel around the world, you do keynotes, you've got books, you're doing all these things. What's the most rewarding thing, I suppose, that you see from the work you do that um, gives you that sort of, I don't know, the joy or the happiness from your day-to-day sort of life? I think for me, it's when I'm with a client, it's when I'm um, giving a keynote or running a workshop or coaching or mentoring a client and you can see when that light bulb goes on, when I've said something to them or asked them a question and they've just, the pennies just dropped and they've gone, oh my God, that is so true, I hadn't thought of that before. And that's when you can see, when they realise that something, and it could be anything, it, when they realise that there's something that they've just learned that can be a game changer for them, that's the most rewarding thing. Yeah. And it could be, you know, it could be an audience nodding away to what I'm saying or it could be a coaching client. I had one the other day who said to me, I have never thought about, and I'm doing a lot of video social media um, work at the moment with some CEOs, and I said to one of them, put your phone on selfie mode and record a video and send a video email, like send a video link out to your workforce instead of a written email. And he said, why should I do that? And I said, so they can see your face and hear your voice. Mm. You're new in your role. Use it as a way of explaining who you are and what you stand for and what you're wanting to achieve in your first 100 days in your job. And he just looked at me and said, that is so clever because I've been going around the state having conversations with as many of my workforce as I can get to to talk to them about what I want to achieve in my first 100 days, but I'm running out of time. And, you know, it'll take me 100 days to get to them all and I would have done nothing except met them all. (laughs) (laughs) So true. So so I said in the the times when you can't meet them, do some video. And he just went, oh, oh. Yeah. Now, do, so now do, he is. Yeah, and do you think do you think with that, Mel, that um, I'm a big believer that, you know, writing is great and it's always good to read and things like this, but the power of obviously listening to someone's audio or seeing them on video, it builds that rapport and that connection, whereas, you know, writing an email or writing down the intentions that you've got for the next 100 days, it doesn't quite have that impact. So are you is that something that you're trying to bring out in your clients now, that the power of showing your face, building that reputation through your voice and your video? Yeah, it is. It is. And, you know, listening to somebody's voice, so listening, the way that most of us consume audio content, such as podcasts, is through earbuds in our ears. And that is so intimate, to have somebody else's voice in your ears. And so that is such a great way of getting to know somebody else in a way, uh, you know, whether you're ever going to meet them or not. It's just such a great way to get to understand who somebody is or isn't really, really quickly. So the more that, and the more that you can show your face as well through using video, then I think that it's such a great way to start that um, building of a relationship. Yeah, it, it's it's really funny, isn't it? I've noticed since I've obviously started putting myself out there with podcasting the last three years and video and things like that. You're probably the same, Mel, that you'll rock up somewhere to do a talk or a presentation or a keynote now. And do people feel like they actually know you before yeah, they, they actually do. meet you? Yeah, they do. So I've hosted a couple of podcasts and I'm just about to launch my next one. Ooh, and one exciting. of my 
favourite, thank you. Um, again, I'm, I'm putting it out there so it happens. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Accountability, Mel. Reputation, consistency, legend. Hopefully hopefully by the end of July you'll see it. Okay. Oh, my cool. God, now I've committed to that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to keep you to that. I like it. Excellent. I've been saying it for three months. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I, when I did my last podcast, I'd have, I often would interview friends or people who I knew and had known for a long time. And people would, um, when I'd bump into other people or other friends, or I'd get messages from people saying, I just listened to your podcast with, and they'd name somebody and they'd say, I felt so voyeuristic because I felt like I was eavesdropping on a conversation between <laughs> two friends. And I said, you were because we are two really good friends and we just recorded our conversation. <laughs> yeah, and that's, and that's what it is, isn't it? It's, um, I think that's the beauty of podcasting, that it's it's authentic and it, it could go anywhere. And like we just mentioned before, I don't really have many questions. We're, we're really just having a conversation here and we're both pretty much on the same path. And I'm sure other people are listening, feeling like they're, as you said, sitting in the room with us when I'm in Melbourne, you're in Brisbane. It's crazy, Mel. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's how I used to podcast as well. I'd have a list of questions and a successful podcast for me was when I got to ask my three standard questions that I asked every guest and a, a, sort of a, a less successful was when I asked every question on my list and yeah. we got to the 30-minute mark and um, I had well and truly finished. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Now, one of the things we, we're going to mention about your book and you've obviously got another one coming in November which we're going to talk about, but um, how important is it setting timelines? So you've obviously just mentioned here another podcast coming in July. You've got another book coming in November. How important is that to uh, be accountable? Like you've just said there that you, you put it out there and I think that's the beauty of social media or podcasting or videoing or whatever that you can put it out there, but how important is it to stick to that and come through with the product on the end? Yeah, I think it's critical. Um, well, I think for me, because I work for myself, I don't have – I've got some clients who I'm accountable to, but at the end of the day, if I want to do things like a podcast or another book or, you know, update my website, which I need to do, or, you know, post um, regularly on LinkedIn or post regularly to my newsletter, the only person who knows whether that happens or not is me. And so – you know, I've got big goals for both professionally and personally. And if I don't set myself some intentions and set myself some targets and some timeframes, then they will never happen. It's like when you, like one of the things that my husband and I haven't done this year is plan a holiday. And so we're not going to have one because the year's almost, you know, the year's rapidly coming to an end. And I don't have time in my schedule now between now and the end of the year to have three weeks away. So, I said to him, we need to plan a holiday for next year because otherwise next year will happen and we'll never do it. And it's mm -hmm. the same with work things. For me, if I don't plan them and commit to them, and sometimes, you know, timeframes might slip because other things might come up or, or I might decide, actually, you know what, that's not the right time for this book. Um, my second book was going to come out in February, no, in May this year, and I was really stuck on it. So, I sat down um, a few times to map it out and I just couldn't, nothing was flowing and I realised later that it wasn't flowing because it wasn't the right book. Mm -hmm. And so I was very happy to just put that one aside and now my book that will come out hopefully in November if I get my act together. And <laughs> <laughs> Accountable, I like it. Get my act together, <laughs> spend a solid few weeks doing some work, yeah. um, and that's right for me. 
I've got a tentative title. I've mapped it out. I know what I want to say and I've got a plan in place. And, you know, one of the things I said to you before we started recording is that um, everything I'm doing at the moment, I'm recording and transcribing so that that will make up a good part of my book because I'm a big believer in think once and deliver often. Um, and one of my mentors, a man called Matt Church, two of my mentors, Matt Church and Peter Cook, are really big on deliver once and, oh, sorry, think once and deliver often. So, you know, all of the keynotes that I'm doing at the moment, all the workshops that I'm running, all the podcast interviews that I'm doing, I'll record them, transcribe them, and then they'll make up some blog posts, they'll make up some LinkedIn posts, and they'll make up a good chunk of the book. Mm, so that I don't then have to sit down and think, what did I say that day? I had some really good things that I said. Yeah. But I can't remember them because I've had too many other thoughts coming into my head. And it, it's one of those things as well that uh, once it's done, you forget about it, you move on. But you're really um, missing out on so much good content there, Mel, that you've probably given to me in this podcast that now you could use elsewhere as well. So I love that. Now, you mentioned a little bit before about um, obviously professionally and personally that Sean, you help yourself don't have a holiday this year, um, but you're still trying to grow doing these things how do you grow as a person professionally and personally are there things you do i know you obviously are reading and podcasts and so forth but are there other things you do um i do quite a lot of professional development so i invest a lot of time and money into myself for professional development and most professional development has a personal development aspect to it regardless of whether it's couched as that or not. So to give you an example, I spent three days a few weeks ago doing some speakership training. And um, while it was very definitely couched as professional development, every time you get on stage, there's some personal development that happens. Yeah, correct. <laughs> um, and so that's one of the things I do. Um, what else do I do? I try to you know, I see a personal trainer at the gym a couple of times a week, so I'm focusing on my health a lot more than I have in the last couple of years yeah. um, because I'm, you know, approaching a zero birthday next year and 20? determined – oh, yeah, thanks. You're so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God I'm not still 20. <laughs> Don't need to live through my 20s again. <laughs> no, it's a few numbers higher than that. So, um, But, you know, I've realised that I've focused on other things other than my health. So I'm currently, um, you know, doing an elimination diet to just get some of my gut health back in order. I'm um, going to the gym. I've made a commitment to myself over the next few months to try and do 30 minutes of exercise a day because I'm not a natural exerciser. It, I, I'd far rather sit in the corner um, in a warm place in my house and read a book than go for a walk yeah. or do other forms of exercise. So I'm really trying to do some of those things. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we've got a couple of – I do a lot of travel with my job. So last year I think I was away 103 nights. Wow. And this thing I always pack is my sneakers and my gym gear. And while I don't always get out for a walk when I'm away, I try to – more often than not, I do. Yeah. And, and I think one of the, the things you just mentioned there is that moving doesn't come naturally to everybody. And and for other people, people really struggle to read. But it's about mm. putting yourself outside those comfort zones because they're both essential for not only living a healthy life but also developing personally and professionally like you just mentioned. So, Mel, I know we've put some timelines on a new podcast and your second book, but let's talk about your first book. And that's really around creating thriving online communities. Now, um Really exciting. Do you want to talk a little bit about this book? Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you. So my first book is called The Social Association, 
five key skills not-for-profits need to increase member engagement, generate a return on investment and create a thriving online community. And I wrote it, it came out last year. Um, and at the time I was doing a lot of work with member-based organisations and non-profits and nobody ever writes anything for them. So I, my book is specifically um or was intended for those two audiences of, of associations and member-based organisations and non-profits. But everybody who's read it, who's not from that world, has said it's really relevant to all kinds of organisations. So it's relevant to commercial organisations, it's relevant to sole traders and small businesses um, as well. And what I talk about in it are why we need to be using social media the benefits of using social media and how that increases engagement as as it's a great way for people to get to know you, like you, and trust you. And then I just talk through what are the five key skills that you need or that you need to think about. And the first one is strategic thinking. And that looks at things like um, creating a social media strategy that dovetails in with your communication strategy and your business plan. Uh, how do you identify the right social media channels for your organisation? What do you need to consider to have a social media in, in a social media policy for your workforce, whether or not they're using social media or not professionally? Everyone who every organisation who has one staff at least needs a social media policy that includes things like what you can and can't say about the organisation you work for, because we know everybody talks about their employer. Um, and you need to put some parameters around the kinds of things that you, they can and can't say publicly, particularly when it comes to breaching privacy. And then the second key skill is about how do we become more customer service focused? What are some of the differences that we need to be aware of, given that there's five generations of people now in most workplaces or in many workplaces, and definitely five generations of consumers who are buying our products and services from us? What do we need to think about in terms of um, the, the customer experience? How do we be authentic? How do we build trust and authority? And importantly, how do we say thank you? Because that sort of gratitude in business is something else that I think is really undervalued. Mm. And the more we can show our gratitude for our workforce, our customers, our clients, our investors, our suppliers and our other stakeholders, then again, the more inclined they're going to be to want to do things for us. So that if, if we say if you say if, if an organisation says thank you to you, you're far more likely to go back to buy from them 100%. in the future. And one of the things that I found with my um, work with nonprofits is that 30% of people never make a second donation to a nonprofit. And the real the reason they don't make a second donation is because nobody thanks them for the first one. Mm, so true. Isn't that just staggering? Yeah, and it's but, how easy is uh, a phone call or a simple email or even just that little thank you handwritten card in the mail? Exactly. Yeah. And the issue is that a lot of nonprofits think that they're saying thank you, but they combine their thank you with the ask for the next donation. Yeah. <laughs> so they say thank you for donating to us. This is our current campaign. Would you like to donate again? Yeah. And the thank you needs to be a standalone thank you with no expectation of anything else. Well, I think that comes back to anything you like, Mel, that if you're thanking somebody, it's not with another offer, it's not with an upsell, it's not with anything. Mm. It's, it's a standalone thank you because you are really grateful for whatever they've done for you. 
Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's not hard, is it? No, it's, it, well, <laughs> it doesn't sound hard when you say it like that, but what it, I think it comes down to is that that's extra work or that's time, but that time is so well spent because then people actually feel part of something and they feel like their contribution means something. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. It's like when um, I remember when I was at, um, in my early 20s and I was living overseas and every now and then I'd ring mum and dad and dad would answer the phone and I'd say, hey, dad, it's me. And he'd say, how much money do you need? <laughs> Sounds like me. <laughs> and I'd say, no, dad, I'm just calling to say hello because I haven't spoken to you for a few weeks. And he's like, oh, you don't need money? And I'd say, you can send me some if you want to, but I don't need it. <laughs> I'm actually good. Thank you very much. <laughs> I reckon, Mel, a lot of people listening to something like that will be along the same lines. And I'm, I'm smiling because that was mum was to mum. Oh, dad, what do you need now? I'm like, no, no, mum, I'm just missing you. No, um, she's yeah. looking straight through that. Actually, a couple of years after that, I was um, visiting mum and dad and I was probably in my mid-20s by then and I was away, living away um, at uni and and um, I heard my mother on the phone to one of her sisters and she said to me, she said to her sister, oh, our kids, I just feel so unnecessary in their lives. They never need anything from us. They never even ask us for money. <laughs> oh, well, that's, that's nice. And I thought, oh, that's good to know. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, so a few years later, when I bought my first house, I rang up mum and dad and they knew that I was buying a house on my own and um, I rang up dad and, and mum and dad and I said, I've just bought a house. And I thought, oh, that's great. And I said, and I need to borrow some money. Yeah. <laughs> and and dad said to me, oh, oh, how much? We're a bit cash-strapped at the moment because we've just bought an investment property. And I said, oh oh, could you lend me $5,000? And he said, oh, oh, yeah, okay. I can, um, I'll write you a check tonight and I'll put it in the post tomorrow. And I said, great. And I said, how much did you think I was going to ask for? And he said, oh, I thought you were going to ask for between fifty and 100000 oh. I said to him, I didn't even know that was an option. <laughs> but thank you for clarifying that for later, Dad. Can you tell me? All right. <laughs> Oh, that's crazy, isn't it? If you asked me last week, I could have probably lent you that much. And I'm like, what? <laughs> well, you could have bought a lot bigger house now. <laughs> I know, had a much smaller mortgage. But um, particularly years later when I said to them, Here, I'll send you the, the money that you lent me. And they said, no, don't worry about it. We, we intended to give that to you. And that was when I thought, oh, I should have asked for more. Hindsight, <laughs> <laughs> amazing thing. Exactly, exactly. Now, Mel, to, to finish off, I always sort of finish with a couple of questions for my guests. And if you could look back, and this might be that hindsight about, um, you know, you could have got more money out of your parents. I don't think it would be. But um, if you could look back to 18-year-old Mel from everything you've done, from living overseas, traveling, working, speaking, writing books, podcasts, you name it, doing all these things. If you could give yourself one bit of advice as that 18-year-old Mel, what would that be? Oh, 18-year-old Mel was so incredibly shy and introverted. Um, really? And yeah, yeah. And nobody ever believed, nobody who knows me now, who's met me recently, believes that. But I, when I was 17, I was desperate to be a Rotary Exchange student and I had to push myself so far out of my comfort zone to get accepted into that program. Um, I think I'd say to 18-year-old Mel, if somebody asks you to do something that is that has a degree of responsibility, don't say no because you don't believe you can do it. 
if they believe you could do that, they would not have asked you if they didn't believe you could do it. So say yes to more opportunities. That's that's really good. So how how did you change? If you're so introverted um, to now, obviously uh, keynoting around the world, speaking, helping so many people. Um, I'm what, still what introverted. You, you put yeah, on a mask. Get me wrong, I'm yeah. still introverted. Okay. I would far rather be on the stage. Like the scariest part for me of any presentation is when I walk off the stage and I get mobbed by people. Ah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd far rather be on the stage where I can be a little bit more in control. Um, but I just, you know, I've, I've, I've got goals and I've always had ambitions and I've always wanted to do things and I realised that if I wanted to live the life that I want to live, then I need to become more focused. I need to become less focused on myself and more focused on um, building relationships with other people. Mm, and that's so true. that's, yeah, so that's what I, you know, uh, I still draw all my energy from sitting at home on my own with a good book Um, or in my hotel room at the end of a workshop, you know, because I travel a lot, I'm lucky I've got friends in lots of places around Australia and around the world. And when I travel, I always try and catch up with at least one friend, but I always say to them, while I'm happy to catch up the day after I've run a workshop, you won't get me at my best. I'll be very, it won't be a long night. It won't be a late night. And I might not talk very much because I'll just be starting to regroup. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a really good point that um, you don't need to be the biggest extrovert to do something, but you do need to challenge yourself and you need yeah. you do need to step outside your comfort zone. And I think that's really what you're sort of coming down to there, Mel. Yes, yeah, yeah, it is, it is. Yeah. And, and believe in other people, like believe in other people's belief in you. And I think there's so many people, women are particularly bad at this, at looking at an opportunity and saying, oh, no, I couldn't possibly do that because I don't have this one little element of skill set or confidence that is required for that job. Um, Whereas men, and this is very broadly speaking, will look at an opportunity and say, well, I've only got one of those qualities, so, yeah, let's go for it. Yeah. And it, it really so, just comes back to, um, you know, believing in yourself. And I suppose, it and, and it comes back to probably receiving. A lot of people struggle to receive, I feel, Mel, that um, receive a compliment, receive a gift, or receive a recommendation because they doubt themselves. And I, exactly. I do see that pulling women more than males, and, and you're probably right there. And that drives me crazy. That yeah. drives me absolutely crazy. If I say something, if I pay somebody a compliment, it uh, it is so frustrating when you do something kind for someone or you do something generous for someone and they almost brush it off. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like I overheard a woman the other day, a man was holding the door open for her and she said, I can hold my own door. Thank you. Oh, and I just went, Oh, and I walked through behind her and said, thank you so much. I really appreciate you holding the door open for, for me and, and for her. <laughs> now, what, what did she do with that? Because, well, I, I see this all the time that people think taking a compliment is uh, it's like a negative or it's a, a sign of uh, weakness. Yeah, I know. And I don't know where that came from, but it's not. It's, you know, I think it's a sign of strength to yeah. take a compliment yeah. and to be gracious. You know, it's like when you... Um, win at a sporting game or win at anything, be a gracious winner. We talk about gracious losers, but we need to be gracious as winners as well. And it's the same when you've been given a compliment. You know, it should not be that difficult to say thank you. My mother used to 
she was particularly bad at this, you'd give her a gift and she was a great gift giver and she was great at compliments, but she was terrible at receiving them. Mm. And I used to just say to her, take it in the spirit in which it's given. Like pretend you're giving it to somebody. How do you feel when they, if you compliment someone on their dress and they're like, oh, really, I think it makes me look fat. Yeah. That is not the point of the compliment. Thank no. you. Well, it's definitely not, Mel. And I think receiving or uh, being able to take those compliments is really like listening. That um, they're skills that, you know, they're not easy to take. But if they're not done right, people won't want to talk to you. And people will stop giving you compliments because it's an awkward situation when you give one out and then they sort of slam it back in your face. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So true. So true. So, Mel, what, uh, I know you've still got a lot of good years left and you've got another exciting zero birthday coming up, but yeah. what legacy do you want to leave? What do you want to be remembered for, for all the work you've done and doing? Ah, oh, that's a really good question. Um, I think I'd like to be remembered as somebody who makes people think and just somebody who sparks ideas in people's minds and helps them have some of those light bulb moments that helps them have a better life. Yeah, I, I like that. I think that's exactly what it comes back to. Like you just said, when that's when you feel the most rewarding in your job mm. um, and it sounds like you're already doing that. So I, mean, I know people listening along today, some of the things that you've mentioned, and I know I probably predominantly work with more sports coaches and teachers in schools, but um, exactly what you're saying, it, it all applies to everybody in workplace, at home, anything. And if you can show that empathy, kindness, and always be authentic, and then obviously when you get that, you're power of listening and you can show a softer side of yourself, uh, everything you've mentioned today can be adapted and used everywhere. So I really thank you for that, Mel. Now, people are listening along going, I want more of Mel. Where can, I, where can, we, where can we find you, Mel? So I'm all over online, the online space, yep. as you would expect from somebody who's written a book about social media. Um, <laughs> so. <laughs> so my website is melkettle.com, um, and every, if you just Google Mel Kettle, then you'll find me. My LinkedIn profile is Mel Kettle. I don't do very much on Facebook, um, but I am very active on Twitter, which is Mel Kettle. And I do a little bit on Instagram. I don't love Instagram. But LinkedIn um, and LinkedIn and Twitter are the two social media platforms I'm on. And my website has lots of information as well. Perfect. Now, and you can email sorry. me at mel at melkettle.com is my email as well. Awesome. Now, Mel, I'll have links for all of that in the show notes. Guys, this is episode 151, so I'll have all of that on the podcast links. But, Mel, thank you very much for your time today. I've really enjoyed it, and it's uh, been really refreshing, I suppose, for me just listening along, nodding, because everything you've spoken about, relationships, been a good role model, and everything I've just mentioned before, um, it sort of hits home what I have believe in and what I've been talking about as well. So thank you for your time today. I really look forward to hearing your new podcast and your second book when it comes out. And, uh, yeah, thanks for giving up your time today. Absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on, Dale. It's been great to talk to you. Thanks, Mel.